0: hi and welcome to the miseducation of the slp i am your host ingrid and welcome back to episode four of season two when we're really breaking down what it means to be educated in this career Um, i had the pleasure of discussing some academic realm type information with my guests last week or two weeks ago because we're doing every other week now with this series. Um, Natalie, who is this wonderful resource and, you know, person of extensive understanding of what it means to be in the academic sector as a speech-language pathologist and what some of those challenges kind of introduce for us. So I brought her back, for her second episode because of the fact that there was just so much more that I wanted to delve into and basically to vet out with her. And so she was so welcoming in offering some more of her time. So welcome back, Natalie.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much. I love talking to you and I'm so excited to be back.
0: Wonderful. So after our last, um, Conversation, you know, there's been a little bit of time that has gone by. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I was really thinking about in regards to the academic aspects of things um, also kind of ties into the space that I've been kind of seeing where SLPs need a little bit more knowledge when it comes to certification because we did talk about that in the first two episodes. And it was really with the wonderful resource of Jay that we discussed in depth, like where we are with the CCC process, what that really represents how do you see the C's being represented in the academic environment? Like, is it something that's highly talked about? Is it a frequent topic? How do other professors and other individuals in that environment feel about the C's for themselves? What are your thoughts on it?
1: Right. So I would say the majority of our faculty speak about the C's as a requirement and also as an end goal. You know, it's almost as if this master's degree, the clinical fellowship year, all of it is kind of leading up to the C's. That would be my guess from interactions with faculty. I do know that we have a few faculty members that do speak about the optional nature of C's, especially thinking about school systems or if you have a state license it may not be required so i do think we have a few faculty members that speak about it in terms of the option of it but i would say by and large it is almost the event that we're moving toward if you will you know so it's almost like your masters you pass your praxis You do your clinical fellow, you get your state license and get your C's. I would say that's probably the majority of how people
0: speak about it at our institution. And in that respect, um, when it comes to why, Mm -hmm. because I asked that with Jay, who was part of Mm -hmm. the organization that sat on that i always want to ask why Mm -hmm,
1: mm -hmm. and
0: the reason i want to ask this question is because of the fact are we doing almost like a telephone experience with what the Cs actually represent after 30 years of being implemented Mm -hmm. or is it really a circumstance where we find value in it as academics not knowing or understanding what it represents in the clinical experience, because as a person that's a clinician, those C's don't benefit me. Mm -hmm. But as a PhD, it offers a tremendous amount of clout, networking opportunities, um, and honestly, just you know, being at the same level with my peers. So there's a lot of like, I don't know, notion around it versus mm-hmm. as a clinician, like they don't really care whether or not I'm certified for real. They just care that I know how to do the job and mm-hmm. they want me to be paid or and they themselves want to be paid, like businesses want to be paid. Yeah. So I'm just trying to figure out are academics really paying attention to what is really necessary to be a good clinician? And mm-hmm. do they feel like when they encourage the C's, it's a contribution to that in some way?
1: hmm hmm I think that is a great question. And I think that it depends upon the institution that you're at. So I actually... Work at a teaching institution, and it's also classified as something known as a R2, which stands for research at the second level, if you will. And then there are institutions that are considered R1s, where the primary goal of that institution is research. They're considered research one. That means they have a lot of federal funding. Um, They do have programs, you know, educational programs, but the priority one is research and research output. So I graduated from my PhD program from the University of South Florida, which is a research intensive institution. And I would say that at the time, and this was you know, almost a decade ago now, um, there were definitely academic faculty members who didn't have C's because they never practiced clinically. So they could have had maybe a speech science or a linguist type background, or they were solely in the research world and they never saw a client. So to have C's was not something that was on their radar. Now, Where I'm at now at Central Michigan University to be anywhere on our faculty, either academic faculty or clinical faculty, it is a requirement to have C's. And so I think that my perception would be it is encouraged for the most part because of the standards that ASHA has set. Now, when it comes to your typical run-of-the-mill faculty member understanding that in some clinical circles, the C's do not bring as much value add as in others, I would say there's probably not a huge awareness of that. I would also say that I think that by and large, it's one of those situations where people do it like one foot in front of the other without much reflection on it. That would be my also, that would be my guess as well. Um, Because I think it's almost, as you were kind of saying, it's one of those things that people do without necessarily much reflection about it that would be my guess at my um for my current institution but I will say especially if you're in a research intensive institution where your primary job is to conduct that research you know I've seen several faculty go without C's because they're not working clinically and they may even do clinical research in some regards but still not have C's so I think that is um A possibility for some people.
0: Okay. When I was listening to that, you know, Mm -hmm. it's interesting that people, there are certain people that are like, I don't need my C's because I'm not working clinically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There are 45 States, 45 States that's, that say you don't need to have your C's. Mm.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know that. So yeah. There
0: are only five currently. What ends up being the doc, the way they discuss it is that they is, there's a requirement for it to be a level of an equivalent.
1: Right. Okay.
0: And there are States in general that don't really promote that in a big way. So people only think there are a few States that don't require it. They don't realize the magnitude of how many don't Mm. require it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so SLPs in general that are complaining about this experience as clinicians Mm -hmm. in frustration with how they feel about what is my obligation to the CCC.
1: Mm
0: I feel it does start in the academic sector.
1: Mm -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. I think that makes sense. If our educators are not really giving transparency in this, Mm -hmm. is it a situation where we're doing students a disservice?
1: I think it very well could be. You know, it's really interesting that you say that, and I'm fascinated to know where Michigan lands on that because um, I moved to Michigan in 2013, and Michigan, I'm pretty sure was one of the last states in the United States to get licensure for speech pathologists. So I do wonder if it has some, if there's some type of connection to that for the state of Michigan. Because I remember when I was getting hired, they were like, yeah, 2013, this is the first year that the state of Michigan has required licensure for SLPs. And so I'm assuming, Now I don't know that it was ASHA C's was the requirement before that, but I honestly, I don't even know. So I think in terms of um, academic institutions and not necessarily conveying, as you said, transparent information, I think that could absolutely be a disservice that I very well could be taking part in.
0: And that's really where I have a bit of concern mm-hmm. um, as we move into compact licensing. Yeah, okay. So yeah. now we're going to have this great opportunity as speech-language pathologists to have access to compact licensing to roll out in 2023. Mm-hmm. And we're really really trying in the general sense of things to make it so that slps know hey you can be licensed in your home state with your home license that's part of the compact and then that allows you to be licensed in other locations Uh and you don't have to have your c's Uh 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 and this is something that is really a a beautiful moment for SLPs to start registering Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. amount of flexibility they have. Now, a lot of people state in general that it's about billing. It's about billing. It's -hmm. about billing. Billing Mm -hmm. is not a hurdle. When you really read the language of billing, depending on the insurance company, again, it's a circumstance where you're hearing a CCC equivalent. Okay. Mm. Hmm.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So when you just need the equivalent of a CCC, that very much is me, and you, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. anyone else. But when we think about CCC equivalent, what does a PhD do to go from being a CF to a CCC? Hmm. Do they so, have to clinically practice? What no. is that circumstance?
1: Yeah. So that's a really great question. So it depends on your program, but for the most part, so a PhD is a terminal research degree. So you don't need to do anything with your C's at all. Now, granted, because several institutions require the C's to be hired, What some PhD students will do is they will do their clinical fellowship year part-time and then be a PhD student part-time and maybe take a little bit longer and kind of meet those requirements in different settings, but simultaneously. I think you might find a very, very rare circumstance would be where the research that a PhD student is conducting would somehow count for clinical practice. I can't really think of where that might happen. There could be very rare instances, but I would say for the most part, the PhD and the C's are really separate, um, and you're doing them in completely separate experiences. Now, granted, you could do it for longer as a PhD student, and when I was in my um, program, there were some people who did that. There were other people that were more like me who practiced for several years and then went back. So they already had their Cs. But when it comes to like what I learned in my PhD program, it was all about learning to do research. And it wasn't really anything to do with clinical
0: practice. So when you are getting your C's, Mm -hmm. there is a level of clinical intervention that you're doing with the required amount of hours. Exactly.
1: Exactly. So usually that can't be, (coughs) excuse me, that isn't compatible with your PhD program. So I know of people who they've done like a part-time PhD and then they've done like part-time in the schools or part-time in a hospital setting so that they can meet the hours and the clinical time for their C's at the same time. But they tend to be very different experiences and not have much to do with each other. Interesting. Yeah.
0: So it's just a means to an end rather than like an uh, uh, actual like, process where you're gaining something that's really going to be beneficial to you as a PhD practitioner or a PhD researcher, because that's essentially what PhDs end up doing for a majority of their career is research.
1: I, that's right. Now, I think that some people who, especially in our field, the people who do what could be considered clinically applicable or clinical practice research, I think those people tend to view their clinical practice as the driver of their research questions. And I would probably, I would definitely fall into that camp. Whereas I think, in fact, I know I'm in the minority of PhD researchers in our field, um, So I think for some PhDs in our field, it is a matter of just kind of getting your Cs to meet the requirement. And then you're right. Once you have your Cs, you don't ever have to really see a client again. You know, you have to do the continuing education, but it's a credential that doesn't leave whether or not you're active clinically or not. Once you get it, you kind of get it as long as you continue to you know, do the continuing ed hours. So I think there's there's probably a group of PhDs in our field that look at clinical practice that way that kind of got their C's and then they haven't really haven't seen a client since. Um, I think there's a smaller group of people that have active clinical practice, either if it's through, you know, clinical supervision or if it's through um, their research is extremely clinically applicable. But the amount of people that are doing clinically applicable research in our field is very, very small in comparison to the PhDs in our field. Hmm.
0: Okay. So in that, our experiences as educators, Um, And it actually correlates with what ASHA states as well in regards to you need to be seed to be a supervisor. Like you cannot supervise somebody without your Cs. And in my mind, I'm just thinking to myself, you could literally not be a practitioner and oversee someone. That's right. You You can have, you have, you, as long as you have three years of experience at some point, so As long as you have your three years somewhere in your, but you were practicing SLP for three years and you've maintained your C's, you could be a business owner with your C's who has not practiced for a solid 10 years. Because you've maintained your C's, you're able to supervise a new SLP. Right.
1: That is right. That's my interpretation of what, of the guidelines as well.
0: Is yeah. that something that academics really want to critically evaluate? Like, can you or can we as a collective like really start to adjust mm-hmm. our almost sheep-like following? And it's mm-hmm. a terrible way of expressing this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I say it with the most amount of compassion that I could possibly find, but it's really that it is. It's a sleepwalk.
1: It's Mm. a sleepwalk.
0: If you go, I go. If you say, I say, if you do, I do. And for all of these individuals, these people interested in asking questions and vetting them out, Mm -hmm. why Mm -hmm. is the space of what is required to be excellent at your job not one of those spaces because the research needed to distinguish whether a clinician is competent versus okay. more competent with the correlation to the ccc is something i'd love to understand because uh-huh. it becomes so imbued in work expectations In billing, occasionally you'll have the biller that's like, yes, we want it. Employers definitely want it. Because when you read equivalent, it's just easier to just require it. Mm -hmm. You don't want to have to vet out, well, do they have the equivalent? Like that's exhausting. So people like to just go to the easiest factor, like just have it. And so then we don't have to do any of the detailed work. Mm -hmm. But why do we need the equivalent? What is the contribution of the C's to a practicing clinician, to a PhD educator? Like, where are we benefiting from this experience? And why is there no curiosity in that to help in the experience of like adjusting ourselves as practitioners? to really seek resources that are benefiting our clinical practice. I think my concern is that once SLPs feel like they've achieved their Cs, they feel they're mm-hmm. knowledgeable. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And my concern with that is you're not. Right. I know. I know. You, you
1: speak the truth. You do. You know. And if I can do anything, if I can, if my students can leave my classroom with any message, I only hope with all of my being is that it is a lifelong process Mm -hmm. that needs to be full of critical thinking. And as you said, deep, passionate curiosity about what is going on. I mean, this is to me in this field, there is no finish line. I just don't see, I don't see a finish line. I mean, I'm constantly being challenged in what I thought and how things are going. And I agree with you that, you know, when we think about how we're educating our students, when we think about the realities of clinical practice, that more and more it's do more with less, do more with less, right? That's been the message all through COVID. I feel like you know, it's getting worse and worse. So how do we think about the best way to educate our students to provide high quality clinical practice? And I mean, it's easy to think about this, right? I mean, I'm sure that you, I know I have, I'm sure listeners have had a credentialed provider, you know, if it's a physician or whoever that person may be, and you're like, this was horrible. Like, this was not the care that I needed. This was not best practice. Mm-hmm. But then you go to a provider, you know, in the next city over with the same exact credential and you do get the care you need, right? So how do we base our education to really produce those curious, high-quality providers, right? Because that's what we want. Because it's not about... A finish line, right? So I think having some of these discussions is a great way to open this up and see and explore, you know, what can, what can we do? How can we, you know, as you say, you know, how, how do we turn more of a curious eye to this? What, what might that look like?
0: Well, you being in that environment, I'm curious about your comfort level That mm -hmm. kind of discussion with the peers you have around you. Right. And like just vetting it out for the aspects of, I'm in an academic environment. Mm -hmm. I'm surrounded by people that are interested in asking questions that are a little bit more complicated. Right. But this is more than just complicated, this is also controversial.
1: Yeah, I know.
0: Right. Because it's about something that people highly respect. And I, like, I, I'm not one to advocate for or against, mm-hmm. but I am a person that looks at the field and I see SLPs are complaining about this every year annually on like clockwork. And Mm -hmm. SLPs are asking ASHA to stand up and be like social advocate. Like ASHA Mm -hmm. needs to fight against Roe versus Wade. And ASHA needs to fight against racism. And ASHA needs to show advocacy for the LGBT. It's a nonprofit organization. Yeah. It is not a social justice experience. Like we... Mm -hmm all have to take on our own ownership over the things that we want to see different in the world. And we too much of the time want to lean in on the coattails of an organization with what we consider a powerful amount of influence. But when Mm -hmm. we forget that we, the people, have the influence Mm -hmm. and we Mm -hmm. rely more on an organization, it is because of pure fatigue. We don't Mm -hmm. want to do the work. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. I think if we were no longer in our own minds required to be affiliated with an organization, we would require less of the organization and maybe put some of that responsibility on our own shoulders to make the change and differences that we wanna see in the world. Uh And so when I'm considering all of those layers and I'm going back to my academics that are churning out SLP generation after generation, semester after semester, how many are really interested in going? You know what? Let's change the dialogue for them, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and reconstitute yeah. their own power and making a difference in this profession. How can I? How can I encourage something like that for my academics? It's a really controversial experience, but I'd like to know your thoughts on it deeply. I,
1: I mean, I I am extremely open to having these conversations, and I feel. I feel very comfortable doing so. And again, as I said in the last episode, it's easy for me to have these conversations as somebody who's in the 92% majority. Um, this I found really interesting. This just happened today in class. Um, I've got 40 first year graduate students in their very first class. Okay. So this is their very first grad class. And As we were talking and discussing content, the 92% statistic came up in terms of our profession being 92% cisgendered white women. And so the conversation that followed was I asked them, you know, in your mind, what moves the needle on this issue? And I'm telling you, Ingrid, they were full of really thoughtful ideas, starting with eliminating the GRE. They talked about the expense of graduate school and that for many of them and many people who might be interested in this profession, it just is not even an option due to the expense of it. Um, they talked about the expense of applying to school. So one of the students um, today shared that she applied to four schools and it cost her $600 to apply to four schools. So when we think about ways to increase the diversity in our profession, we talked a lot about what are the things that we can do from a graduate admission standpoint, right? What are the barriers that we're putting up in terms of the GPA that's required, in terms of standardized testing, cost to apply, cost of the program? These are all factors that I think are really worth wrestling with. And as I'm, you know, communicating with these 40 incoming students, Oh, the other thing that they said, Ingrid, that I thought was interesting is they talked about how during the last semester, how you do your um, internship, but you're essentially you're working full time and you're learning the skills, um, but they talked about how that internship is unpaid. And what are you, you know, it's still part of the schooling. So it's still um, a situation where... If you don't have resources, that's going to be really challenging. So I think as we start to consider the role of the Cs, what we can do to ensure quality care, you know, this comes down to maybe some different discussions about graduate admissions and how do we want to, you know, not just get people in but once people are here to really let them know that you're not just checking a box but you belong here and we we need you here and I think all of these layers of issues in my mind anyway they're kind of all connected. I don't know if you see it that way but I see it them all kind of influencing each other in different ways and it is complicated and there's a lot of layers but I think that having these discussions having these discussions with incoming students because if you think about it these are a group of people who despite what's going on in the world right now they competed to get a spot in a graduate speech pathology program and I find that to be really hopeful because in their mind, what we do as SLPs is is meaningful enough, is important enough um, for them to want to pursue it. And I think we can look to those students and we can have these discussions to think about what can we do to, to improve. And we can look at these challenges as opportunities and it's going to be hard and it's going to be uncomfortable but I think I I mean I know I'm overly optimistic but I, I do I am hopeful I don't know exactly what it's going to look like but when I look at students coming in I feel more hopeful now granted we have to listen we have to think about you know what is this going to look like um but the, f- I mean, I know I wasn't thinking of these issues at all as a first year graduate student. All I s- cared about was still getting all A's. You know, that was my like priority number one. But these mm-hmm. students, they're, they're thoughtful. They, they care and um, they have a different worldview. So I think it's going to be interesting to see
0: it kind of play out. Well, I absolutely understand that vetting out ideas is something that in general, is a desired and appreciated experience. I think my problem with that, though, is that even though these great ideas occur, action mm-hmm. is not to follow. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. That's true. There's no denying that. There's no
0: denying that. And yeah. we have a we have a perpetual um, behavior of discussing things, feeling good about the discussion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's really ineffective. And this is where, um, as a whole, mm-hmm. um, the white community is challenged. Mm-hmm. 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 Because the black community, the Spanish community, the Asian community, the disenfranchised community, the gay community, transgiant like the LGBTQ across the board um, community, like. Everyone who understands that change is required through effort, Mm -hmm. dialogue is a great place to begin, but it is not the whole experience. So it's more, it's wonderful to talk about the problems that we've already identified because they're just explaining what was already identified repeatedly through people that are observing and educating us. This is not new information.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm it's nice. been researched extensively it's very clear repeatedly that there mm-hmm. are just barriers to creating diversity that is not what's causing solutions in our organization or in our discipline and mm-hmm. if we don't receive those things we're going to continue to think that the dialogue is enough hmm
1: hmm mm-hmm.
0: so as academics Mm -hmm. We love to conjecture. (laughs) (laughs) Not me. Just
1: kidding.
0: I totally (laughs) do. It's it's literally a circumstance where I'm like, okay, let's stop talking about it. What are some actionable experiences that you're going to put into place to actually affect a domino scenario with an outcome that you want to see in your own academic environment? Uh And it is the responsibility of every individual who wants to see change to make that occur. Uh And so I lay that at the feet of people who get frustrated with what circumstances they're in. You cannot do it alone. And no one is asking for any of us to do it alone. However, I am asking for more than just the conversation once the conversation has been achieved and done. And so it's less about the next generation changing things for us, and it's more about the current people that are knowledgeable to make that change. So the educators, the PhDs that you are seeing that are not discussing certain circumstances like the Cs and saying, okay, no, this is the end-all be-all, what can that small collective do to affect all the other PhDs What in, in the sense of being representatives of people that don't have Cs? instead of just talking about not having C's, just don't have them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Be an example of a successful SLP that was like, yes, I did my due diligence. I did my process. I had my C's for like a year and now I don't need them.
1: Hmm. So they
0: really demonstrate you don't need them because who is going to believe you about not needing them when you have them.
1: Right. I mean, that's a great point. I, I, yeah. You and know.
0: advocating to your academic institution is probably the biggest thing. Now, in my transition, my advocacy would be in where I'm doing my work and doing my efforts. And I am going to be moving along the lines of like, how much can we convince our customers to not require this mundane thing we've done it in one sector schools in a certain state that doesn't require it and our company was gung-ho about it because we want more clinicians and we want to let you know that's not required to work for us if you're going to go here and we love that to the highest degree i want that across the board for this company to Mm the best of our capacity without risking liability or concerns about that. So that requires true education. But that's my journey, as well as this podcast, to educate all of my other SLPs, you individually have a chance to be able to advocate within your own environment. And you as my beautiful guest, you also (laughs) have the same opportunity to go to your institution and really advocate for things like that. In the same manner that you advocate for GRE, in the same manner that you advocate for like tuition, unfortunately, that's going to be a hard sell because tuition is never going to be adjusted. But you can offer resources to be like you can be get you can get grants. Mm-hmm. There's tons of money out there for diversity. Mm-hmm. Like, let's look at ways that we can access these and advertise them. How can we advertise that we are willing to give grants? Mm -hmm. Or we're willing to give, uh, you know, scholarships for this particular program. Like, how can we advocate for all this free money that we don't ever spend? And Mm -hmm. find avenues to create the diversity you want to see within your institution. This is the calling. And if you're going to be an educator to teaching the next generation, you also have to live in the example of doing so. And I call everyone to that status because, especially in the realm of an of of, a, of an organization that really lacks the populace that is fired mm-hmm. up about change, there's mm-hmm. too much complacency. There's too much desire to have the solution provided to you as long as you complain loud enough. That's mm-hmm. not this. This is going to mm-hmm. be an uphill. Battle. Mm -hmm. So I implore that of every single person that I interact with get dirty and involved and be that example that you want your students that are going to be moving through their program to be as well, because they're going to lead the charge after you when you've done whatever due diligence you can do to whatever effect you can affect it. But you do, and every person next to you that cares also does that power
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know I really I agree with what you're saying I think that when it comes to and I also have a major bias as an implementation scientist which means that I want someone who is going to get services at facility a they're going to get the same services at facility B. If you live in an urban teaching hospital versus if you live in a rural area without access to a training hospital, you know, and I think that's part of what draws me to implementation science because it's saying if we know that we have a treatment that is effective We need to make sure that it's implemented with fidelity everywhere, that it's not just for a certain batch of people that happen to be lucky enough to be born, you know, in the right location. So, I definitely um, take your point in terms of dialogue not being um, the end game. It's certainly the beginning. And I think when we think about action points for academics, one easy thing that I think I can think of is to think about the admissions process and take some data on that process and think about um, any gatekeeping, you know, that we might be doing intentionally or or not intentionally, you know, at that admissions level. And I think for me, um,
0: but know- it's more than attracting. I understand oh, some of the okay, but okay. it is about attracting. So you can attract a more diverse, um, clientele through marketing of resources that are available okay. to compensate. For mm-hmm. some of the hurdles that cost will imbue, like cost is a big deal, but if you have a marketing component to say we will support and provide assistance for that because we yeah. want your services, you will achieve increased participation from a more diverse clientele. Yeah. But if you look at your sister, um, you know sister um, organizations or schools. Mm-hmm that are historically Black college universities. Look at that. Look Mm -hmm. at what they're doing because they're consistently getting Black and diverse people. California, Texas, these are getting lots of diverse. Florida definitely has a lot of diverse SLPs coming up and through. What are these institutions doing to have such diversity? Is it just simply because they have easy access to these you know to these universities and it's literally just demographic based like you're there close to their family like what yeah. are the places with a more diverse slp graduate program doing that your organization is not doing and if it's nothing other than being in the right location then really the only thing you have access to is marketing because then you're mm-hmm. going to be like i can give you money sure i can help you financially you don't have you will be paying out-of-state tuition, I can get that covered. You will have to pay for a dorm, yeah. I can get that covered. You will have yeah. to, I can get that covered. That's a big tall order, depending yeah. on the diversity of your state. Right. Right. So that's more what you would have to look at. Mm-hmm. So it's really not so much just to label it as the circumstances of the hurdles of the process, but really, you are a university that may not be situated with a lot of diversity available to you because you are maybe in a predominantly white environment. That we are, yes. So if you're in that circumstance, who wants to pay out-of-state tuition for a year and dorm costs and all that? And like, really? So how do you market to say, we have the opportunity to fund or provide scholarships or provide you access to grants or whatever. How do you market that piece? And that's where you'll get your diversity.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And I mean, again, that's, you know, one piece, right? And then the next, as the layers kind of continue, it's okay, well, how do we ensure that we are educating and producing Lifelong learners who provide such a high level of quality best practice across the board. You know, what are these are additional questions, right? How do we how do we ensure that that's happening?
0: Right. Absolutely important. A hundred percent. Absolutely. And that is what's more the critical question, because it isn't improved by having the C's. We are not reducing the amount of inappropriate practice because we've implemented the C's. So we do need another avenue. There's going to be good and bad in our profession, just like any other, there's great doctors, not great doctors, great BT's, not great BT's. Yeah. Across the board. Right. But how do we do our best in the academic environment in providing not only the evidence-based practice, the ideal circumstances, but also the real world experiences Mm -hmm. that gives a clinician the opportunity to really shine. And it really does stand within the aspects of, are you critically assessing the situation? And providing less support. We're evaluating their ability to be clinical thinkers instead Mm -hmm. of being answer providers Mm.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and that's really the responsibility of the clinical educators in general you read this text what's your interpretation if you were to meet a patient x so yes you know the abc based on this now i'm going to send you into the clinical environment and i'm going to tell you now take everything you've learned but turn it on its head so that you can be patient-centered show me that
1: yeah
0: right and that is the best type of academic environment that you can put a clinician in to be an excellent clinician Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely yeah but academics also need to know what that looks like what does it look like to see a a, a clinician that is critically thinking instead of a cookie cutter churner evidence based practice one mm-hmm. and so researchers need to bridge the gap with patient centered clinicians and provide something that is somewhere in the middle
1: yeah this is interesting. this was there was a term that i just learned i was on a call with some people and um it was a colleague from canada and They use the term values based practice, which is a term that I hadn't heard before, but you base your practice, you know, off of what your patient or your client's values are, right? And that's like the driver of your decision. And I mean, we talk about that a little bit in terms of it being part of the triad of evidence-based practice, but I was like, wow, values-based practice. Like that what an incredible way to think about um the types of services that we want to provide.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And if we can imbu like embed that culture, mm. if we can really embed that culture, we really are going to do something really delicious. As a profession, it'll be like, ooh, did you get that speech pathology? Ooh, she was good. <laughs> yes! That is what I want. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So we absolutely have some great food for thought to walk away from after this dialogue. Thank you, Natalie, for joining me for round two.
1: It's truly my pleasure, you know, and I, I don't have this figured out for sure. But I'm here and committed. And I certainly want to listen. And if any um, listeners have feedback, you know, I'm, I am wide open, like, this is how we, this is
0: part of how we do
1: this. So I appreciate um, you having me back.
0: Absolutely. It's really something that I think is beneficial, not only for the people that are listening that are interested in kind of delving into this. But also for me, as a person who is from an entirely different environment than you, to connect, mm-hmm. understand, explore, and critically assess. Because yeah. that's one thing I'm really good at, let's critically <laughs> assess. Let's see. So um, I want to thank anyone and everyone who's listened. If you want to reach out to Miseducated SLP, um, that would be amazing. I would love it. You can DM me on IG or Facebook and basically just ask any questions. If you want to reach out to Natalie, that's also going to be an opportunity for you if you were to reach out. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming back for, and thank you guys so much for listening until next time. Bye.